Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a person who interviewed Kevin Smith on the internet this week, just like Dan. And yeah, I'd like to start with a little bit of discussion of that, if that's okay, because we both had a pretty profound experience interviewing Kevin Smith earlier this week. And you can watch that interview on Arrow's YouTube channel right now and then come back and listen to this because I thought it might be good to give people insight into what that experience is actually like. For example, Dan, what was going through your head when Kevin Smith's first answer to your first question was one <laughs> actual hour long. <laughs> um, what was that experience like? I, well, I think the, the weirdest like moment in it all for me was that I kind of settled into just watching Kevin Smith speak as I have so many times on my computer over the years yeah. or, you know, on my phone, on a podcast or whatever. And then I was like, every now and then my brain would have to go, no, no, you're going to have to interact with this. He's actually talking directly to you. It's not not just a podcast you're listening to or an interview you're watching. Sooner or later, you're going to have to like acknowledge him or like... That's very funny. Ask another question. That's very funny. Yeah. Yeah, Which, you know, it's kind of... Yeah. (laughs) The opposite of how I interact with podcasts normally, where I'm pottering around the workshop, especially if I'm on my own listening to a podcast, and I have to just remember, no, no, I don't actually know these people. They're not actually talking to me. Yeah, yeah, it's the direct opposite of the normal experience. And yeah, I was kind of of similar in a way because um, I actually use Kevin Smith as a a bit of a pick-me-up. Like when the kind of quarantine stuff started to really hit hard i had a a few days where all i did was watch kevin smith interviews and you know stand-up routines and documentaries and stuff like i do find him very comforting presence but this was the first time ever that listening to him i mean it was interesting and i enjoyed it don't get me wrong but it wasn't the relaxing soothing experience i normally have all my brain was doing was thinking right okay well he's just answered that question on the list I'll ask this question instead. No, he's just answered that one and another one on the list. Okay, and that one's gone. And so, yeah, it was very much, if I kind of looked calm and smiling and nodding and stuff, in my head, I was, you know, rapidly trying to restructure how we were going to do the whole thing. Because originally we only had an hour with him um, full (laughs) stop. And that was the first question. And I was worried we, w- we weren't going to get paid if we didn't ask at least one more question. And as it, <laughs> <laughs> as it turns out, um, when Dan and I turned our, our phones back on after the interview, we both had a, a message from our boss and producer, Hello Mike, uh, who produces this show and edits it and, and all the rest of it. Um, we had a, a WhatsApp from him saying, uh, could you maybe ask another question? <laughs> um but but yeah i mean it worked out perfectly um you know he was up for carrying on as as long as we needed to and he kind of made that clear at the beginning and i think the way it was structured in the end was kind of perfect i'm really proud of it i think it's um you know i watch a lot of kevin smith interviews i know you do too dan um and uh yeah i'm really pleased with with what we got yeah, yeah, no, I mean, he was he was a delight to talk to. He was, like, I think the thing was that he he was this very, like, rare combination of an unstoppable talker 
and very warm and welcoming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting point because he's clearly got a lot of like yeah, warmth and empathy. Like his his reaction to our personal stories kind of demonstrated the kindness I talked about in in my own personal story uh, about meeting him um because yeah, like he could have just laughed it off, but he genuinely engaged with me and and remembered what he could and and was nice about you know the little details of it and yeah i I loved the comments that popped up in the live chat about that and yeah, it was really nice to see so many positive reactions to our kind of personal stories because I was a little bit worried that we were being self-indulgent, but I think it, it gave an insight, um, A, into his longevity uh, and B, into kind of the person he is, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I should say that we didn't see all of the comments that appeared on the live chat until after the interview, um, because we were in kind of a different setup, so we weren't watching it on YouTube, um, so didn't see those those live chat things. So I'm sincerely sorry if you had a good question that wasn't read out. Um, I also think the system was being a bit glitchy, uh, so we had some uh, interesting stuff appear in the main discussion, uh, which also added to the inner panic I was experiencing. Um, yeah we, let's let's just leave that there shall we <laughs> so uh this will be the first uh disc that is an american exclusive that we've talked about um uh, because as may come as no surprise to anybody we're going to be discussing the Mallrats 25th anniversary edition now obviously this is sort of by and large why we were talking to kevin but uh it's I mean, it's interesting because it's a it's a cult movie in a slightly different way to a lot of the stuff that Arrow normally deal with, mm. uh, and I think it's a very uh, a very special addition to the catalogue. Uh, partly because of that, there's a a fondness that a lot of people have for this movie. Like it feels like quite a, an important film to a lot of people, rather than just like the fun midnight movie uh, or like an oh my god you've got to see this. Like it encompass it, it encompasses both of those things as well. But it also has like a I feel seen aspect to it for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, uh, certainly for me, this was one of those uh, I don't feel as alone type movies. Um, I'd seen Clerks, I think, on TV for the first time, um, if memory serves. And so obviously loved that. And that does have some of the elements of this film, you know, the Star Wars talk and um yeah the 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 feeling that it took place in a in a real world um with people that kind of felt like your friends um but with more rats you know i was a 90s comic book kid um you know i, I read gen 13 which was kind of a relatively deep cut and you know parodied in the opening credits as gwen 13 um i had a punisher poster in my bedroom like brody and and at that time, it will seem unbelievable to some people listening to this. Um, at that time, th these things were not cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you got bullied for liking comics uh, when I was growing up. Bullied quite mercilessly. Like reading a comic in public was an act of bravery. Whereas, you know, now it's like the most mainstream thing possible. But uh, back then it was a, a, a counterculture action. 
Um, and so to see this film where there's all the references to the comics and to the comic book movies and, yeah, lots of little deep cuts and stuff, I was like, oh, okay, someone else speaks my language, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's absolutely. It was... Um, I think the other thing that separates stands it apart from Clerks, which, you know, obviously I'd, I'd hugely enjoyed, is that this, because it was a bigger budget, because it was a studio picture, because it was in colour, it felt more like the rest of the world was embracing you. Like, when you watch Clerks, you're like, fuck yeah, this speaks to me, to some extent. But yeah. it was it still felt very niche, very, like, small. But when you saw more rats, it's like, oh, fuck, okay, this is, like the things I care about are a big enough deal that they're spending this kind of money on them. Yes. Um, unfortunately, that was uh, incorrect um, because... Uh, <laughs> yes, that was. Uh, as was Kev- a, a nice moment. Yeah. No, no, exactly. I, yeah, as Kevin, you know, points out frequently on the disc and in our interview, Morax was not a success uh, on its uh, on its initial release. But man has it aged like a fine wine in some respects um it 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 could be made today with the same references basically yeah yeah absolutely i mean they it kind of has been recently (laughs) with with uh with with uh giant silent bob reboot has uh, a lot of lovely elements of uh of more rats in it and and you know and and i would say that that's probably the best of the of the modern viewerskew pictures precisely for that reason it, it, it's the one that most makes me feel like i'm watching more rats again well um yeah and i i promise not to dig too deeply into um our interview with kevin smith because you can just watch it but one of the things that he pointed out in that discussion was that um the third act of reboot was originally in his more rats 2 script um and you know lots of uh lots of bits and pieces of that script uh, has apparently been plundered over the years but um the the third act was very directly taken from his original Morats 2 script he's still doing Morats 2 he's just going to take it in a different direction um so yeah i think it makes total sense that that you felt that same kind of Moratsy feeling from from reboot um yeah no it's uh, i i really enjoyed reboot um it's really good fun um but dan we have yet to do the plot of Morats. We've left it late again. Uh, what is this film about? <laughs> well, so Morats is an astonishingly simple plot. And I think that a lot of its success comes from it being really just a, a slice of life picture, which, you know, we've, we've talked about that particular subset of film before. But ostensibly, uh, two guys, uh, one who's recently broken up with his girlfriend, one who's about to break up with his girlfriend, um, seek solace. Uh, with their friends in a mall which is where they all hang out there happens to be a sort of game show thing going on in the mall that's a side thing um but by and large it's really just the sort of the the day in the life of these comic book you know movie quoting guys in a mall yeah yeah exactly um that's it yeah there's no no way to beef it up more than that Basically, at the start, two guys get broken up with. At the end, they're back with their girlfriends. Spoiler alert. And and that's pretty much it. But then, you know, Taxi Driver doesn't have much of a plot either, does it? It's a, it's a character study. And, and this is kind of a, a character study. Yeah, Jason Lee as Brody Bruce 
I think he's absolutely amazing in this film. Um, haven't watched more. He's great. In, I haven't watched more rats in in many years, um, but obviously I used to watch it religiously over and over again when I was a kid, uh, or when I was younger anyway. Um, and yeah, I I knew that I loved Brody back then, and I was surprised at, like how much that performance kind of holds up. It's so charismatic. It's so kind of charming in a very <laughs> strange, twisted way. Yeah, I just think he's amazing in this film. Yeah, it's really interesting. I Going back to it, I, like you, had watched it many, many times in my youth, but hadn't seen it particularly recently. And I had just kind of assumed that it was going to be one of those ones that hadn't aged particularly well. Not because of the the like the references and the film stuff and the comic stuff, but more because I assumed that it was going to have loads of jokes in it that by modern standards were a little like offensive or like maybe punching down a little bit but actually for the most part it's pretty on the up and up and the stuff that is slightly difficult in there um is by all accounts the studio pushing for it to be more like porkies rather than kevin uh you know having an inappropriate uh, desire for inappropriate jokes yeah no that's that's so so spot on and and you can actually you know back then you could kind of feel that those bits weren't as fluid, if that makes sense. They actually really felt wedged in. And, and you know, it's even more so now that you actually know that this was stuff that he was kind of, I won't say pressured to put in, but um, certainly wasn't in his kind of original conception and he had to find a way to make them work. But, you know, despite all of those kind of moments, it's actually a relatively sweet-hearted film, and as with everything that Kevin Smith does, um, you know, either you love his dialogue or you don't. I love his dialogue. Um, you know, it's it's kind of up there with Tarantino for me in terms of um, how kind of signature it is and how you just know Kevin Smith's material when you hear it. Yeah, I was I was kind of really impressed on this revisit, like you, um, how much really holds up and... Um, yeah, just how much fun it is across the board, really. Yeah, it, and there's uh, there's multiple versions of the film on the disc. There's the extended version as well, mm. and the the commentary that's on there does point out the stuff that was added. Uh, there's um, a lot of sort of acknowledgments of things they had to cut in the writing process as well, so you get an insight into. Um, like places where it would have gone longer and sometimes it feels like the studio is right and sometimes you are sad that you don't get to see more of something yeah and i think that's kind of really important to remember there's a lot of demonization of studios and producers and stuff but um there's a lot of love for uh, smith's producer on this disc isn't there absolutely yeah he, he gets a sort of an in memoriam extra feature as well which is very sweet Actually, uh, Kevin talked about attending his funeral at length on the on the interview we did as well. It was probably my favourite bit of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that was an amazing moment. Actually, very moving. And yeah, the the producer's name is Jim Jacks. He's a bit of a legend. Um, he's worked on lots of amazing films, and and you can hear all about that on, on the actual disc itself. Um, but yeah, I think it's important not to necessarily demonise the studio too much because at the end of the day, it was what they thought was going to work at the time and it just wasn't the path that that kevin smith you know really should have been on though i do i do quibble with a couple of things that smith 
sort of says about himself self with self-deprecation like he always kind of talks down his filmmaking and uh, he always says you know oh no one wants me to do a comic book movie i wouldn't know where to start but actually there's some nice stuff in here there is some nice filmmaking in here like the yeah. the, the first confrontation between ts and svenning is a relatively complex tracking shot um with a lot of stuff happening before it cuts like it's an ambitious shot kevin doesn't just stick a camera on a <laughs> tripod um in this film like there, there's a there's there's some really cool fun stuff yeah absolutely uh absolutely i mean he he talks uh i, I can't even remember if it was to us or if it was in other interviews <laughs> <laughs> but he he talks about how uh he knew going in that the the thing that would sink him would be hiding his naivete like his greenness mm. and he went up to one of the camera team uh either the dop or possibly even the first ac and was like oh it was the first ac so they got because the dop was his regular dop who the studio are a bit worried about but the first ac was like a sort of tried and tested standard and he was kind of there because if they were like if the studio were like fuck we've got to fire this dop they'd have someone who could step up and look after it until they found a replacement but rather than like resenting his presence, Kevin approached him relatively early in the production, in like you know during pre-production, and was like, "Dude, you have to fucking help me with this," <laughs> and was like asking him for advice, mm. and 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 felt very taken care of. Like the guy was very supportive. So I think that you know for all of his unnecessary self-depreciation, what that means is that he you know in this his you know one of his biggest studio definitely his first studio picture he knew his limitations and he knew how to ask for help and that's you know so often it's the egos that sink people yeah yeah no i think that's a hundred percent true and yeah he's such a unique guy when you put it like that because he's like one of the greatest showman self-promoters that there is um he's kind of made his name off promoting himself through lots of different mediums um but he does seem like a genuinely down-to-earth, ego-free guy. And those two things don't necessarily always go together. And that really kind of comes across on this disc, really. And he, he goes above and beyond. Like, there's an intro to the film on this disc. And normally when you stick on an intro, <laughs> you're thinking, right, okay, well, hopefully it will be two minutes long, but it's probably going to be about a minute long. Whereas this one, it pushes half an hour, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like 25 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as an intro, it's fairly astonishing. And then you also get uh, a really, really lovely and in-depth behind the scenes, um, like interview, uh, a one-on-one -on -one interview. Yeah, it's just a really, really packed disc. And if you're a Morats fan in America, you will be very, very, very happy with it. Um and you know there, there's been a couple of complaints about it not being released in the uk believe me if arrow could release this in the uk they would they're not doing it to oh, yeah. to hurt you um it's just purely licensing stuff but yeah it's an amazing disc and who knows what will happen in the future licensing stuff changes yeah maybe it will come to the uk one day but uh, for now it is only a us disc yeah, I feel we should explicitly warn our listeners that attempted to um, uh, import it that that does mean that uh, it is contractually a region-locked disc. Yeah. So unless you have a multi-region player, you can't just buy it off Amazon or, you know, Diabolique 
uh, and have it shipped to the UK and expect it to play. Like, it's not going to play on a PlayStation. No. But if you have a multi-region player, then yes, you can play it in the UK. Yes, but we're not recommending that, are we, Con- contractually? I'm, I def... I'm, really? <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I think the whole Fine. point of, of region <laughs> locking a disc is so that people don't buy it in the UK and they buy whatever's available here instead. Um, so we certainly don't want to piss off the license holders. Well, well, I have to ag- agree to disagree. I, I think it's just a test of how dedicated you are. They're, they're never going to listen to this. Just buy it, for Christ's sake. Buy a multi-region player. Get it in your collection. I watched a multi-region, uh, a region-locked film today uh, from Shout Factory. And uh, and as I put it in, I was like, oh, yeah, Shout Factory locked their fucking disc. That means I have to use this stupid player to, to watch the Friday the 13th set that's coming. Oh, nice. I'm glad you got that. Um because you you've got like a you've got the DVD collection as well, haven't you? Is that right? Or have you well, just I mean, collected in, in, like, them all in piecemeal? Yeah. yeah, no, I just collected them over the years. Yeah, so I had one and three on Blu-ray had been replaced, uh, and then all the others were still on uh, on DVD. Uh, but the one that was really like precious was the uncut version of Nine. Yeah. And so when they announced that this was you know that the American full box set was going to have them all remastered on Blu-ray, absolutely spanking but had the uncut version of number nine included, which previously was very hard to get hold of. That was very exciting. Uh, and then it turns out they screwed up the encode and it's missing a shot, an effects shot. Uh, and so they've had to... But but in massive kudos to them, they've like gone public and said, look, guys, we, we fucked it up. We've, we've actually... There are errors on three of the discs. Wow. So they're going to have to send out replacement discs, three replacement discs to every single person that bought oh. one of those boxes. Fuck. Always the way there's so, always something. Yeah I, yeah. I think the errors the errors are one of the th- credits shots in part three in the three D version isn't properly aligned. The wrist snap outside the diner in number nine is missing in the uncut version. Although it's I think it's a short version of it is there in the cut version. And then the in Jason X, there's a sound a, one scene doesn't have any sound. Oh no. This is the thing, like... Which seems like a pretty basic QC error. But, you know, Nora would never let that fly. But they've done the good thing and they're going to send out replacement discs. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like, this is the holy grail of of box sets. I mean, talk about rights issues. Jesus Christ, it's the first time it's ever been kind of collected together in in this way. Um, And so I'm sure... So many people have bought this. I'm sure so many people have imported it. So they'll have made a lot of money out of this release. But it's heartbreaking that, you know, they've gone to all of this effort and and there's some errors and they'll have to send out discs. But like you say, really, really good on them for um, for actually stepping up and owning up and sorting it out. So, um, yeah. Anyway, this is not a Shout Factory podcast. This is not a Friday the 13th episode. <laughs> this is Morats. Do you have anything else that you'd like to say about Morats? I, I mean, not really. I was delighted that it was as good as I'd hoped it would be after all these years. Yeah. Uh, Arrow have done a lovely job on the disc. I'm very glad I've got a multi-region player. Yeah, it was just a really lovely set. And yeah, just... Um, yeah, I just honestly don't think there's anything that I can say about this film that isn't covered in depth on this disc. Um, like any question you have, any thread that you want to be pulled, 
you know, whether it's it's Ben Affleck and, and working with him for the first time or w- whatever it is, um, it's covered on this disc. Like, I learned so much from it. I had no idea that Jason Mewes had to audition for this film, for example, um, which which to feels play himself. kind of <laughs> insane to me. Um, and, and actually, uh, Smith's kind of loyalty to Jason Mewes, I think, is a huge turning point in his career. Because I think if you'd have had Breckenmeyer or, or whoever it was that could potentially have replaced him, that chemistry wouldn't have been there. That very, very unique Jason Mewes energy, which we all love so much. Um, I don't know if this franchise, this kind of Jay and Silent Bob shared universe, I don't know if it would have gotten off the ground. And that is a huge part of what appeals to people about these films. So if Smith hadn't been loyal to Jason Mewes and been like, sorry, man, um, I've got to go with the studio. We've got to cast a name in this role. Good luck with everything. Um, it would have been as detrimental to Kevin Smith as it would have been to Jason Mewes. Um, but Smith didn't know that at the time and just stuck by his friend. And um, yeah, the studio refused to pay for Mewes's like travel for his airport you know his airplane ticket um they had to share a room um because they were so not keen on having him in the movie but it's one of the elements that makes it so so special like after watching this film i was quoting jason muse i wasn't quoting anyone else um on the playground yeah oh man i love this film so much um and i hope if you're listening to this you do too should we get on to recommendations dan i've just waffled for ages let's do it no that's good man i mean that's it you know there's a lot of love for this it's it it makes everyone feel very good it does (laughs) it does indeed and so um what have you got recommendation wise i'm worried about both of mine this week i think we could even if you've gone obscure i think we've we've got a crossover potential here but let's see i've not gone obscure thank fuck for that I've not, I've not gone particularly obscure. Mine are well. The first one I think is in this country at least, uh, comparatively underseen. Uh, definitely a stoner comedy, and something that happened relatively early on in a, a, a comparatively meteoric career as well. Um, it's 1998's Half Baked. Nice. Which was directed by Tamara Davis, who did uh, Billy Madison for Adam Sandler. It's uh, an early Dave Chappelle outing. It's a sort of ensemble cast with him and his friends. Uh, basically, Dave Chappelle discovers that the uh, place he works is, which is a laboratory, is uh, working on a sort of a super strong grade of pharmaceutical marijuana, medical marijuana, and him and his incompetent friends attempt to uh, set up a heist to steal this amazing weed and it's fucking great. <laughs> um, it's deeply silly. It didn't do very well at the time, much like more rats. Uh, but it perseveres, and it's a it's, yeah. It's one of the one of the best modern stoner comedies, I'd say. That is such a perfect recommendation. That it, do not listen to me, just listen to Dan. Um, yeah, that is perfect, absolutely perfect. Um, my first one is basically another great mall movie. Uh, it's Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is the kind of film that you can kind of imagine the characters in Mole Rats watching and loving. Um, and kind of the reason I'm highlighting it um, in recommendations, it's basically it's coming out on 4K on the 16th of November. Second Sight is putting out an insanely packed box set. 
um, you know, sorry to Arrow Video. I, I love you, Arrow Video, but it is the definitive edition of the film. Um, it's the kind of thing that Arrow would put out today. Obviously, they put it out back in the day in a kind of different form, but it really is an amazing release. And uh, I had a very quick chat with one of the stars, uh, Scott Reiniger, um, about working in a mall for the film, which you can listen to right now. Oh, God, well, it was all night. Well, once we were in the mall, we did all the uh, non-mall locations before. That was first. Mm-hmm. And then went outside the mall, and then we were in the mall for the rest of the shoot, which was a long time. It was a lot of fun. It was kind of strenuous. It was very tiring. It was just because of the hours, you know, night after night after night after night. But I wasn't complaining, you know. It was freezing cold. I'll never forget that. Um, but it was a good experience. What were your impressions of the mall at that time? Because as a concept, it was still in its infancy. Uh, very good point. It was. It was an interesting article in Newsweek. It was a cover story, and it was on the cover called The Mauling of America. Mm. Right during that period when we were shooting, and I went, oh, that's kind of prophetic. Mm. And it was about what, what was to come in the mauling, quote-unquote, of uh, malls in the future in, in America. And I said, oh, well, that's pretty prophetic that we're actually making this film in this mall. Yeah, and, and, and not just the, the fact that it was the location, the fact that George was satirizing this consumerist paradise before exactly. it had really taken off and dominated American shopping habits. Like, did you have a sense of George as a visionary? I know he's your friend, so it's unusual to think of someone in those terms. But, you know, did you get a sense that he kind of had this advanced knowledge? I did. He, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, you know, the satire in the film and relationships in the film, I think, really work really, really well. Um, I didn't really see that until we started to shoot, because as you know, I, it's not really on the page. Yeah, uh, it's one of the most violent scripts I ever read in my life. <laughs> I was just shocked when I read it. I was thinking, "Oh my God, do I want to do this film? It's so violent." Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, once we understood what was happening, just the irony of the film in that, because of the society and we consumed have consumed everything, so the only thing that's left is to eat each other. So, yeah, sorry, Dan, I normally save those interviews for extra features, but we have um, a packed packed extra feature section today, Um, not least because we're going to get our first ever Dan's rant. Um, That's right, isn't it, Dan? (laughs) No. Um, I can't do these things on demand. I have to be furious. It's like like the Hulk. (laughs) Yes, Dan. You can't just you can't wheedle it out of me. <laughs> I, oh, that is perfect, amazing. What's next for you, recommendations wise? Um, well, so like I can, this is sort of a, an entire chunk of a single director's output, really. Uh, I think they're more widely seen than Half Baked, but I was so pleasantly surprised by Pineapple Express in two thousand and eight. David Gordon Green. Uh, it's another stoner comedy. It's uh, another slightly actiony film. And if you know where David Gordon Green started in his career, it is almost as much of a departure from those films as uh, as Morats was from Clerks, <laughs> like scale wise. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco. Again, it's a sort of idiot stoners in a drug caper picture um it's got one of my favorite things in it which is astonishing violence in a comedy 
<laughs> like it gets really fucking bloody. It does. But yeah, it's it's got a lot of the sort of Rogan Green regulars in it. Danny McBride's in it. Craig Robinson's in it. It's genuinely very very funny, and it's also very violent. So it's basically the perfect film. Love it, love it. Another fantastic recommendation. Um, perfect. My next one is a film that not a lot of people have seen, um, possibly won't even have heard of, uh, and that is Drawing Flies. Um, have you seen Drawing Flies, Dan? No, I've not seen Drawing Flies. So it's basically the quote-unquote lost View Askew film. Um, it was financed by Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier and written, directed and edited by Malcolm Ingram, who Smith actually met on the set of More Rats. He was there presumably on a set visit. He's a journalist for Film Threat magazine. And uh, Kevin and Malcolm kind of bonded. And, yeah, Smith ended up financing his debut film. And it's shot like Clerks. I think it uses the same film stock, um, though the writing isn't as good. But then what writing is as good as Clerks? It's a fucking amazing script. But, yeah, Drawing Flies is about a bunch of jobless dudes who are led by jason lee um to a cabin in the woods uh unbeknownst to them they are there to find bigfoot yeah it's pretty weird it's very low budget across the board whether that's the editing or the sound mix like it does have that kind of amateur feel um but that adds something to it in my opinion i love these kinds of outsider movies um voices that wouldn't necessarily um get found if it wasn't for people like kevin smith it's obviously very talky tonally unique and jason lee is fantastic in it um and there's also cameos from kevin smith and joey lauren adams so there's more rats connections there as well um i would love to see arrow release this one it's possibly tied up in um in in the rights issues that plague kevin's other movies um dogma in particular but yeah, if you can find it, I think it has been released on Blu-ray in the States. But um, yeah, hopefully yeah. It, it will find a release in this country at some point. So yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Horizon Movies put out in the States. Um, I think Kevin funded that himself through his, his podcast label. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, if you can find it, it's, uh, it's a really interesting little movie. Shall we go into the past couple of weeks, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a right old treat the other day. Well, as uh, as many people will know, uh, London has been put back uh, has been put back into a semi lockdown. We're now at zone level two. Tier two, Dan. Tier uh, two. Panic level two. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so we caught up with a friend just before the lockdown. Uh, meant that we couldn't see anyone anymore so mark blackman who uh regular listeners may have heard talk on the podcast in the past on the miracle mile episode um brought round his favorite film that i've never seen a film which i'm certain you would have seen sam uh called stone cold from 1991 oh yes stone cold i know stone cold very well excellent movie so i'd i'd never seen stone Cold. oh my god it's mental uh Oh, what a delight. Um, For those of you out there who are where I was uh, just a few days ago in the dark shade of ignorance, Stone Cold is a Brian Bosworth 
uh, action vehicle. It was originally being directed by a chap called Bruce Malmuth, who hasn't done a lot of films, probably best known for uh, Hard to Kill, the Steven Scar movie, or Nighthawks. Um, but he was, uh, yeah, he was directing it. Then there was a, uh, an argument uh, of some kind. I haven't been able to work out quite what the argument was about. But he ended up being replaced uh, by Craig R. Baxley, who was originally the stunt coordinator on the film, but had mostly been directing the action sequences of the film, like in a second unit capacity up until this point. There was a little bit of a mutiny, a couple of crew left, but loads of crew stayed and were like, no, we like what Baxley was doing already, we're going to stick around. One of the people who did stick around was a member of the cast, a Mr. Lawrence Henriksen, who was like, I'm going to stay, but I'm going to ad-lib every single one of my lines of dialogue for the entire duration of the shoot. It's so good. And it shows, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's um, like, by the end of it, oh my God, it's up to 11. Like, the action is absolutely bonkers. Basically, they threw out about two-thirds of what they'd shot already and just shot loads of extra action stuff. So the entire movie is just an explosion. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Uh, that yeah that put that on the poster on the re-release it's had a decent blu-ray release hasn't it in this country yeah it's like 101 or 88 i think it's 101 yeah i think it's 101 released it on blu-ray in this country yeah yeah absolutely beautiful good print as well like worth worth it yeah really really nice nice one yeah uh i i double that recommendation for stone cold so much fun my recommendations this week uh they have things in common i'm gonna start with girlfriends um, which is out on Criterion uh, on November 16th in the UK. And now Girlfriends is clearly influential on a whole bunch of modern TV shows and movies directly on Lena Dunham's Girls um, and probably Francis Ha uh, as well. Um, loads, loads actually. But th- this film is better than all of them. Um, it- it's basically the ground zero for... Uh, funny women feeling lonely in the big city narratives it's about a photographer who has to deal with being on her own after her best friend moves out suddenly Uh, but it's so much more than that directed by claudia well who should have gone on to have the same kind of career as woody allen um girlfriends is intelligent and insightful and deals with a lot of issues in a very smart way I'm really happy to see it part of the Criterion Collection. Um, The disc itself has some great new interviews, as well as a a couple of uh, excellent short films from Claudia. Um, So, yeah, I really, really recommend Girlfriends. It's out on November 16th. And, um, yeah, it's kind of... uh, I would say it's a lost classic, but I think there is actually a lot of love for this film out there. But, um, but, But who knows? Have you seen Girlfriends, Dan? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, uh, it's from 1978. And um, yeah, it's it's a, a really, really lovely little movie. I recommend it to you as well, Dan. But um, yeah, that's it. I've waffled enough. What's next from you? Nice. Well, so I was I had some quite genre stuff lined up, including some rarities. But um, Jen and I watched, we've been doing a horror movie a day, as, as a lot of people have, have been doing. And we've revisited uh, 1993's So I Married an Ex-Murderer. Oh, wow. Perfect. T- today, which was great and was as funny as we remembered. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. We both did. But the, one of the reasons I sort of wanted to mention it is that there are two versions of it on Amazon, both rentable or buy- or purchasable for the same amount of money. One is at 90 minutes and one is at 93 minutes, oh, okay. which is very peculiar. 
93 minutes is the is the running time as mentioned on IMDb. Obviously, we've got the 93-minute version, and it was missing a couple of jokes. Like, it was shorter than the version we'd seen. It's not one of those, like, Shazam moments where we're, we've just invented some yeah. stuff. But, like, you're familiar with So I'm Mad Max Murderer, right? Yeah, if they, if they didn't have the yeah. woman, whoa, man bit, then we're in real trouble. No, 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 they have that bit. But you know the bit where Stephen Wright's flying the plane? Yes. Yeah, they didn't have the bit where Anthony LaPaglia is like, you've done this before, right? And Steve Wright's like, yeah. I mean, never at night. <laughs> yeah, that's like, one of the best jokes. That, that was missing. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just gone. There, there were a couple of other little bits as well where it's like, what, what, what's going on? Why has this been trimmed? And I guess this is me just doing my occasional complaint about the impermanence yeah. of digital media. Yeah. I used to, I don't I don't think I ever owned this on DVD. I had it on VHS way back. But uh but yeah, like now as far as I can tell, I I don't have access to the full version. I mean, it doesn't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. It's a very fun film, but I have those jokes in my head. Uh, I yeah. remember them. Yeah, no, but like imagine if suddenly the director's cut of Dawn of the Dead wasn't available. Like if that 4K wasn't coming out yeah. and the Arrow version was just gone forever. I mean, that's out of print. Yeah. So, like what do you fucking do? Yeah. What I'm basically saying is get get off my back. I'm allowed to fill my house with discs. Damn right you are. Damn right you are. Yeah. Um no, that is that is bizarre. But yeah, no, that is still still a strong recommendation for sorry my own next movie. Yeah. But try and find a DVD of it, I guess. It's actually weirdly one of my strongest cinema memory so i married an axe murderer because i think i saw it on holiday in the states look at me saying oh it's one of my strongest memories i can't even remember where i saw it but i remember what continent you were on <laughs> I, 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 what i remember from it is the joyous audience reaction to it like the audience i saw it with absolutely fucking love that film i did too don't get me wrong but um yeah they were howling with laughter every single joke um so yeah i've got a real joyous association with um with that film so um yeah i'd be very disappointed if if i watched it and those jokes were missing it's going to this is going to sound like a massively overblown compliment so let me qualify this to some extent after i've said it but it feels kind of like a hitchcock film yeah yeah certainly now, after the midpoint I, the third act definitely i mean i would i would go so far as to say it, it feels like one of hitchcock's less good films but with better jokes yeah I, it certainly feels like a lot of people involved have seen a lot of hitchcock because it, it, there's a yeah. lot in the mix there isn't there yeah it's yeah it's really nicely put together and it's and again it's genuinely very funny yeah another wholehearted double recommendation there um my final one this week is another Criterion release. November is an amazing month for Criterion. Um, I was torn between this next one and their incredible Irishman disc, which for me is still a masterpiece and, and might be um, my non-Arrow Blu-ray release of the year, um, the Criterion Irishman. It's just got so many essential extras. But I am instead going to talk about five easy pieces um, which is perhaps one of those classics that people, uh, arrowheads listening to this, might not have seen. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's just an absolute classic. Bob Raffleson is one of the great, relatively unsung American directors, and this is one of my favourite Jack Nicholson performances of many. I love Jack Nicholson. 
Um, and yet this is yet another movie about loneliness and alienation and it follows Nicholson's former piano prodigy turned oil rigger and drifter. It follows him as he finds his way back home to visit his sixth father, who he's become estranged from over the years. Um, it is a beautiful character study that almost feels kind of Japanese in the power it finds in simplicity, if that makes sense. Um, it's just such a delicate, lovely film. And it's another great disc um, with some really interesting stuff about BBS Productions. So that's the, the film company that was kind of a force of nature in the new Hollywood era of the 1970s. Um, yeah, five easy pieces, just a beautiful, beautiful character study from the 70s. I love it. Hopefully you will too. Five easy pieces. <laughs> Sounded like I was doing an advert for it at the end there. I wasn't. I just love that film. Um, right. I'm very excited about this. Let's go into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. <laughs> oh, the timing of that really tickles me sometimes. Um, right. So... You would have just heard Dan's rant unless Mike, the producer of this show, cut it because it was so startlingly incisive and would have revolutionised this country and would have changed everything. If it was too... Not to, not to mention deeply libelous. <laughs> so, yeah, um, let's hope you heard that because, man, Dan, I, you talk longer than Kevin Smith. It was fantastic. Um, but instead... Uh, Our first podcast to break the three-hour mark. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I was going to do a top 10 of the London Film Festival, but so many of them will appear in my actual top 10 at the end of the year. I figured I'd just save it for then. Um, but I did do a lot of interviews um, at the London Film Festival this year. It was really, really a, a banner year. So many great films. Um, and I was really happy to talk to a lot of people about their stuff. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to be putting those into extra features and talking about the films I saw in that way. So yeah, first up, I talked with the iconic Abel Ferrara about his new film Siberia, which was divisive at LFF, but I absolutely loved it. It's basically a trance movie that sees Willem Dafoe travelling through his own subconscious or imagination or memories or whatever the fuck he's doing. Um, basically, file it next to Inland Empire, and it is very much my shit. It is my, you know, um, yeah, weirdo freak-out movie of the year. And, yeah, here I am talking to Abel about it. Siberia contains a discussion of the black arts, are you interested in the black arts? Are you a magician? Because this film feels like a magic spell. Well, you know, I mean, the black arts in this film might be a film itself, you know. I mean, you know, we're talking about magic versus medicine, you know, science versus, uh, you know, the other side of uh, science, mysticism. You know, the creative uh, thing is is kind of like the balance to the science. I love it. Thank yeah, you. I'm interested. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, answer the question i'm very interested and um it also feels like a film about deathbed regret is that uh, a fair interpretation or the guy has lived a life and he's got memories and, and some of the memories are good and some of them are not so good you know 
and and the ones that he signed to to um, make amends for, even if they're in his mind, or maybe they were, or they're you know, it's hard to it's hard to judge these scenes. You know, when he comes back to his ex-wife, is that a scene that happened? Is that a scene he wish happened? Is that a scene he wants to make happen? You know, I mean, I I don't think that's as important as what the scene ended up being. One moment that kind of really struck a chord with me, um, the moment with Clint's mother, uh, where he apologises for not being there at the end. Um, That moment felt very truthful. Um, What inspired that scene? No, I mean, that was uh, from my my personal memory. You know, my mother died of cancer. I was like, uh, at the time, um, you know, I was drugged and drinking, I'm sure, and... um, Maybe I had a good reason, maybe I didn't, you know. But um, I like, because my mother was very cool and very loving. You know, like I could really do no wrong to my mother. So I, it's almost funny to see in a way. It's like, you know, you're trying to apologize to your dead mother for not being there, to, you know, the moment she died, you know. And, and she's like, but I know you're busy. Like that's kind of like where my mother's at. She would have said, yeah, but you're busy. It's okay, you know. Yeah. She, First of all, she's self-reliant and independent and tough. So, you know, but still, it would have been nice to be there. And is that real footage of your mother that kind of comes in just after? That's, Will, that's Willem's mother. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And and so Willem is clearly a, an amazing collaborator for you. Um, what makes yeah. him so special? What makes your relationship so special? That makes everything you want an actor, man. You know, he's smart, he's sensitive, he's hardworking, he, you know, brings a creative punch. He's He loves doing it. He's supportive. He's there from the very beginning. He's not the kind of waiting to show up on a set when everything's there. You know, he went through all the pain of the creation of the script, the cre- finding the money, looking at locate. You know, he, he's, a, he's, he's a collaborator. That's really the, the best word for it, you know, and a supporter and... and you know, he brings a t- you know he brings the right energy, man, and he brings a lot of it. Yeah, and like this film almost feels like a child <laughs> produced by the two of you. Like it's it's his life, it's his memories, it's his DNA. It's also right. your life, your your kind of DNA. Um, how hard was it to be so kind of honest with each other in order to create something as kind of powerful as this? I mean, that's there as a, as a as a given. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're going to make films, if you're going to do anything artistic, you know, on the level that you're going to, if you're going to express to people, you better start at that, that, that there, your most primal, honest self. I mean, you know, you got a lot of nerve, you know, projecting lies. It's hard enough projecting the truth, so. Is reason an obstacle when it comes to appreciating art? Um, my favourite films create kind of a hypnotic mood um, and it feels like Siberia does that quite powerfully. Is this a film that people should apply logic to? I just think you've got to, I think people need to just watch something and let let it come to them. You know, the Buddhist, it's the Buddhist rap, bro. Expectation leads to resentment. So if you can approach a film and just let it wash over you, let it come to you. Because the film, it has to serve a succession of masters. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to be what's going to be. And uh, this is the Arrow Video podcast, and Arrow Video released King of New York on 4K recently. Um, how do you feel about that film today? Right. The first film of yours that I saw. 
Um, how do you feel about it today? I'm glad we made it. It's cool. I'm glad, uh, you know, Francesco there is knocking out, you know, the Dunas. I'm glad Boyan did the color correction. Um, you know, yeah, I'm all good there. Driller Killer is an extraordinary film. Would you ever make another horror movie? They're all horror movies. All of them. Every scene's a horror film. <laughs> so, yeah, nice stuff there. Um, Dan can't comment on it because he hasn't heard it yet. But, yeah, there's there's some nice stuff about horror in there that I think Dan will like. But, yeah, next, uh, and this is one of two interviews uh, this fortnight. Next, I talked to Natalie Erica James about Relic, which also played at the Arrow Video Fright Fest um, to much acclaim this past weekend. I'm assuming so. It hasn't played yet, but um, I'm sure people are going to love it. Um, I really liked it too. Uh, you probably already know that it's a horror film that works as an allegory for caring for someone with dementia. Um, but what you might not know is that it's influenced by a couple of our favourite Arrow video movies. So have a little listen to Natalie talk about that. It feels like Relic is influenced by Asian horror, um, especially mm-hmm. Pulse. Um, are you a fan of Pulse at all? And, and Yeah, yeah, I'm a massive fan. Um, yeah, I would count that as probably one of my top three Asian horror films. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I think it's brilliant. And really love um yeah I don't know just the atmosphere the you know um building tension within frame it's certainly you know something I tried to transfer to my own film so and, and I've got to ask what what are the other two films on on that list um oh um I've always been a big fan of audition oh wow um and I don't know, I've always had a soft spot for Nakata Hideo, so um, maybe The Ring or, you know, even like his first film, Ghost Actress. I love oh, wow. that film for some reason. Yeah. How fantastic. And uh, what is it yeah. about Audition that makes it so special for you? I really appreciate how unconventional the ghost story is. You know, it's like a horror film or a ghost story without a ghost. Um, yes. So I think it's really cleverly done and... Just, I, I really like psychological horror as well. So I love all the surreal, you know, psychological dreamscape sequences. So, yeah. And of course, body horror is always great. So the, the ending is pretty um, <laughs> full on. It's inspired by your own experiences. Was it mm-hmm. cathartic to channel that into horror? You know what? It Looking back, absolutely. And you certainly don't set out to you know, work through your shit through making a film. (laughs) Maybe some people do, but for me, it's just, you just write about what is important to you and what you're interested in. And, um, you know, it just happened to be what was going on in my life. And in in some ways it's, it's amazing because a film takes so long to make that it has to have those roots inside of you. You know, you have to care that much about it to, to be up till, you know, how whatever time in the morning arguing a, a single frame, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course you need passion, but looking back, I would say a year on from when I finished it, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like I, um, you dig, dig up a lot of shit to, <laughs> to write in the first place. Mm. And then the sheer act of having to work with actors to try and get into these characters' heads, 
um, to consider it from every perspective. You know, I can keep going, but um, the the fact that like my parents came to see it in Sundance and yeah, it's all very tied up in real life as well. So I love that. It was, Thank um, you. It's great. Without going into details, uh, mm-hmm. spoilers, you built the ending around an amazing uh, practical effect. Uh, mm-hmm. It was quite 80s in a beautiful way. Um, how nervous were you about that moment? I've built a film around an ending practical effect. Yeah. And it was in the back of my mind constantly until the day we shot it. Um, how was yeah. it for you? Was it a similar thing? Oh, 100%. And you know that no matter how successful the rest of the film is, no matter how much the performances sing, if that prosthetic is wrong or feels fake or just, you know, falls flat, then, yeah, it's it's all... Um, it's all a failure basically. <laughs> so the stakes are really high. And I had had experience because I made a short film uh, called Creswick, which was basically like a proof of concept for Relic. We also had a puppet or a animatronic element on that, uh, the short. So I already had a sense of the direction in which it would go at least. Um, but in terms of the movement and the nuance that they were able to capture, I mean, that was not until you know, the day of or a couple of days before that I was sure it was going to work. And man, you should have seen me when I first saw it move. I was like <laughs> burst into tears and was jumping around the room. And yeah, um, I knew as soon as I saw it that like, yeah, we're okay. We're in safe hands. But yeah, the stakes are very high. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Thank you. And um, you worked with Lee Wanell on Upgrade. Um, and learned that a director's job involves a lot of problem solving. Uh, Mm -hmm. What was your kind of biggest challenge in making your first film? I know you've made shorts before, but um, in terms of making the leap to to feature, what was the biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? Probably the biggest challenge was just the fact that things are shifting over a six-week shooting period so much. And I tend to be a real organiser, a planner. um, So I like to have you know, to be very specific and have things down to a T, but um, you kind of have to ride the chaos a bit on a feature. And that's really nerve wracking at first, but it's also very freeing because you can surprise yourself. You know, you learn to trust your gut a lot more and come up with ideas on the spot that are way better than what you planned. So um, yeah, sometimes not, of course, <laughs> sometimes it falls through, but um you know, it's it's a it's a great um, learning curve, I think, to be able to just be a bit more adaptable as a director. And the film also reminded me of David Fincher, um, which isn't oh. something that I say to first time filmmakers very often. Yeah, like, right. Amazing. You know, there were kind of elements of Seven in there, like yeah. Yeah. Um, are you a Fincher fan as well, or? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I d- I don't count him as. You know, I never, I never bring him up in like um, uh, when when I'm asked what my influences are. But I, yeah, I think he's just technically just the most brilliant director. Um, and yeah, that's a real compliment. Thanks. <laughs> Very welcome. And um, the the stained glass window is such an important mm-hmm. element of the film. 
how did you decide on the design of that? I guess we were looking for something that um, obviously had a real deep sense of history. You know, it kind of functions as the the literal relic <laughs> of the eponymous, you know, relic. Yeah. But um, it was a combination of references that I pulled and my production designer, Stephen Jones Evans, pulled. And we had, I think he had uh, a wonderful attachment, production designer attachment, um, just as I had, you know, done an attachment with Lee Winnell, yeah. uh, who designed it for us in the end off of a bunch of references that we had. Um, we wanted, we definitely wanted the pine trees in there um, to give a sense of the location where, you know, Creswick is a pine plantation town. Mm. Um, and yeah, it had a lot of different iterations, some with like, sunrises that maybe just felt a bit too earnest or <laughs> twee in some way so um yeah kind of rolling hills and um a sense of home or a sense of place uh yeah fantastic thank you and um you may have answered this already but uh the film mm -hmm. just played the london film festival it'll yeah. also play the arrow video fright fest by the time this episode goes out um, what's been your highlight of Relic's festival life? It sounds like maybe it was when your parents came to see it. Or, but yeah, I have to say, I mean, um, Sundance was the only fest we were able to travel to. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> but luckily it was our premiere and a good fest to, to have if you're only going to have one screening. Um, it was mind blowing. Yeah, it was great. It, it was definitely a whirlwind. You know, they kind of cart you around down the street to do all your press so it's like a full day kind of production you feel like you're it's like your wedding or something <laughs> getting your photos taken and getting mm. dressed up and stuff um but so nerve-wracking going into that cinema and watching it with an audience for the first time I can't tell you how much my heart was pounding um and so well, much really Tell me a little yeah. bit about that experience because that is that's something that I think it's really hard for people to kind of imagine um, mm. because it puts you in a zone where you're so you feel a little bit vulnerable you feel <sighs> you know so sensitive to everything that's happening on the screen so yeah. tell me a bit about that feeling I think especially when you're a writer director it's very exposing you feel very yeah naked in front of a lot of people. <laughs> And you just can't anticipate how people are going to respond because prior to that screening, we had only screened it to like, you know, maybe 30 people like friends and trusted kind of creative colleagues. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I was clutching my partner's hand the whole time. I feel like his hand was just blue at the end. <laughs> um, and I just uh, cringed my way through it. <laughs> It's, to yeah, be quite I, honest <laughs> this, people can't imagine that because obviously this is an amazing film it's such an amazing debut but yeah it's just it's such a weird experience to to show stuff yeah yeah I know you would know as a, a filmmaker as well but I think you know you always have a sense of what it could have been or you know the mistakes that you've made and no one else can see that but for you it's kind of um it's all there <laughs> It's so irrational, isn't it? I'm, yeah. I kind of feel like it's just part of the creative process. And maybe like the, the, the positive spin on it is that if you watch your film and absolutely love it right after you've made it, then maybe you're not like improving or something or you yes. haven't learned anything. Um, so, 
yeah. What's next for you? Like, do you want to stay in horror or do you have other genres you'd like to explore? Obviously, you worked on Upgrade. Um, you know, what would you like to do in the future? Yeah, I guess I'm... Uh, everything I'm writing is in the horror genre, but kind of subsets of horror. So I'm doing like a folk horror and a, um, like a possession film. Uh, but my tastes are pretty much anything that has a slightly heightened genre element. Um, so it could be sci-fi or um, yeah, thriller or psychological drama. Um, basically anything that's not comedy or like social realist drama. Yeah. So yeah, Relic is out on Friday in the UK at the cinema and on digital uh, awesome. on the 30th. So yeah, I, I really recommend it. If you didn't catch it at London Film Festival or at Fright Fest, it has got a great ending. And that's it for this week, but I'll be bringing you more cool interviews next time with lots of good advice for aspiring filmmakers coming up and one of the best uh, explorations of the origins of horror I've ever heard. So um yeah, come back in a in a couple of weeks when we will be covering Dan. What film have we got next time? Uh, we're going to do Holy Mountain out of the Alejandro Jodorowsky box set. Well, we had planned to do El Topo, um, but we can do. Oh, have we, we? Can, fine. We, Let's do both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're going to pretty much touch on all of it. I'd say. So yeah, if you yeah. if you don't have the Jodorowsky box set, I think it is still available. It hasn't sold out, and it is available. Yeah, there's a couple left in the UK. It is available here. So, um, yeah, do do pick up that amazing box set. Um, lots of uh, freak-out psychedelia um, oh, to be had there. Um, I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah, I know you're a huge Jodorowsky fan. So, um, yeah, looking forward to talking about that stuff with you. Anything else, Dan? Please, uh, the, 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 the mic is yours. Um, I mean, I brought my own mic. It's <laughs> definitely mine. Uh, <laughs> no, I meant um, our producer. No, I'm done. I've d- you done, Mike? Oh, Mike belongs to the world. Yeah, you can't pin Mike down. No, um, we love you, Mike. Mike Hewitt, producer of this show. I don't think we often give him enough credit. Um, we should shout out to him more because if it wasn't for him, then uh, it would just be me and Dan talking in an empty room to a wall. Actually, that's what's happening well, and right also now. You'd get all of our. <laughs> and but you'd also get all of our fuck ups that he so beautifully snips out. Yeah, um, my my god, there are many. Anyway, we're waffling again, and we're supposed to be having a shorter episode this time. Um, so let's do our social media. Dan, how can people follow you? Uh, I'm at Thirteen Finger FX on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm getting close to a place where I can start posting some behind-the-scenes stuff from Possessor. Obviously not just yet, because it's uh, it's only out in the UK. next. But there's a few little bits and bobs I can leak out at this point, and then hopefully the floodgates will open in the near future. I forgot to mention that uh, I finally saw Possessor... Uh, uh, when did I see it? Like a few days ago. God, the London Film Festival. Friday. Yeah, 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 we're recording on Sunday, um, so two days ago. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I did sort of tease that I was going to see this uh, last time, so I do feel like I should mention it. And it would normally have gone in my recommendations, but I felt I should save it until it's out. And I think that's a couple of weeks away. But, um, yeah, Dan's yeah, work in something. this film is fucking astonishing. It is up there with oh, anything you, in um, Brandon's dad's movies, I know we shouldn't compare the two because they're completely different human beings interested in different stuff. Um, But yeah, the astonishing effects work that you see in David Cronenberg movies 
you will see in Brandon Cronenberg movies because of Dan Martin, aka 13 Finger Effects. I was so blown away by it. And so, um, yeah, uh, just just see the film for Dan's effects alone. Um, there are other reasons to see it, obviously, but fucking hell, just just incredible. As for me, you can find oh, thank me. Thank you, man. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. That's very sweet. Thank you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Sam Ashurst, and I think that's probably the best place to go for my stuff. Though, please don't go there to insult me. I had um, I had a tweet today, and this is relevant because it's Kevin Smith um, related. And by the way, if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, yeah, this is this is all I have to do to get a shout out on the podcast. Insult Sam on Twitter. It's not going to happen. This is the only time I'm ever going to do it. Don't, don't say their name. <laughs> don't say their name. Oh, I won't say their name. Yeah. So don't give them the oxygen of publicity. So someone said watching that Arrow Q&A for Kevin Smith's Small Rats on YouTube. And if I took a drink every time Sam Ashurst nods, I'd be dead. Like most things, you never need hosts asking questions when Smith starts talking. I mean, that's fair to a certain extent. That is, it's not the worst insult I've ever had online. Um, but my God, um, unnamed person, if you knew what was going through my head while all that talking was happening, there was a lot of work being done. And we do need hosts because um, we, we guided him very delicately through his stories we didn't interrupt him we didn't talk over him we wanted to hear from him and um and yeah i'm proud of the job we did but that's that's it i'm not going to end this on a bitter note dan say something nice please <laughs> thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs> uh and I, I i yeah thanks for listening and <laughs> we promise to be more professional next time and yeah yeah. See you later. That's it. That's it. It's that's our promise to you. Bye bye. Snickety snick. <laughs> bye bye.